Hey, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast. Today, it's just myself and my fellow panelist, Michael Reese, uh, having a discussion. Hello, everybody. So um, we were just going to talk about things of interest to us in the Elixir space generally. Um, I think trying to focus not not so much on on Phoenixy things, but other other areas. Yeah, I think we want to chat about some of the some of the gems that exist in the standard libraries. Uh, maybe some things that um, people have heard about, or maybe they've experimented a little bit with, and um, see if if between the two of us we have any experience putting those sorts of things into production, or uh, or what kind of usage we can get out of them. What sorts of uh, warnings, if any might uh, we might want to be thinking about before we put something like that into production this episode is sponsored by sentry.io recently i came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps then i asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app it also tracks releases so i can tell if what i deployed makes things better or worse they give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors plus one thing i love you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah. So one of the things we had talked about discussing was uh, ETS, DETS, and Amnesia. And Michael, do you want to give a brief rundown of what these things are? Sure, sure. Um, so ETS is uh, it's a way to store um, just any Erlang terms, so any sort of data that you might already have in your application structs, maps, whatever. Um, ETS is a way to kind of think about having rows. So it's kind of like you're managing a little database table. It's in memory and, um, and you can provide uh, various kinds of keys to make looking up that information later very quick. Um, and so this is sort of an alternative to, um, to just keeping data sitting in a gen server or perhaps just passing it around between functions all the time. Uh, and if you wanted to have some sort of data that you can reference from anywhere in your code um, without needing to uh, build a custom gen server for it or without worrying about um, some of the like uh, copying of memory between processes, ETS is a great way to do that. And, um, and so it's part of the Erlang standard library. And then DETS is an extension to that, which will persist all the data you write into it to disk. And so it allows you to um, just manage all that data. And if your app restarts, then you can kind of just resume that debts table and it will still have all the data you wrote into it previously. Um, and then finally, there's uh, another Erlang standard library called Amnesia, which is kind of a pun on the concept of amnesia, forgetting things. Um, but this is actually about remembering things. And it extends the idea of debts and makes it work across a cluster of nodes. So um, you can have a whole set of tables and you can decide, for instance, that you want to replicate um, some of those tables, have a full copy of that table on every node. And when you write something into one of those tables, that will automatically get copied to everyone else in the cluster. 
Um, and on top of that, it, it provides some other uh, really neat things like um, full acid transactions so that you can even do things like change a little bit of the schema of what you're writing into these tables. And um, you can do that in a, in a transactional way so that you don't have to worry about things like dirty reads. And all of these tools come with some configuration um, to do things like parallel reads, uh, parallel writes, um, and in kind of having some trade-offs about what kind of performance and guarantees you want. So um, that's the, the, each one of these things is much deeper than that description, but, um, but maybe that gives a brief layout of kind of what these tools are and how they relate to each other. Yeah, and so I have, uh, we were chatting before, and I mentioned that I had used ETS and, and DETS before. And uh, so ETS is Erlang Term Storage. Um, anyway, but uh, like generally, I think the first time people probably go for ETS is they want to avoid sort of re serialized reads through a single gen server or something along those lines. I think it's probably, is that about when you see people going for it as well? or um, Or there's also just the general use case of, Hey, I want to throw some terms somewhere and get them elsewhere. And I could do it with a gen server, but this is fine too. So what have, what have you seen? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I, I think the concurrency issue of, uh, so, so sometimes I've seen this for things like if you, um, if you had a rate limiting, uh, feature in one of your apps and, um, each, maybe each one of your customers can have a custom rate limit. And so if you stored all those custom rate limits in a nets table, then any one of your Phoenix processes that's handling a given request can check real quick, like, Hey, what's the limit for this person? And, um, sorry. And you're, and you're not now limited to only having one person check at a time, right? Which if it was in a gen server, that gen server is only going to do one thing at a time. Um, so I've definitely seen that use case. Um, caching is another one that I hear a lot. So um, ETS has some optimization around how the data is stored and also how it's retrieved, which just makes it very fast for lookups. Um, and so a lot of times I see people using projects like ConCache. Um, is that what it's called actually? Uh, yeah, there's Con ConCache is one of the options. There's also CacheX. Yep, that's right. Um, and so I see people, um, a lot of times they may not even be thinking of it as, as ETS or ETS in that case, they are just thinking of a caching library and it happens to use it. Yeah. And I really, I really like the, um, I think it's called cache X, the, uh, the one that I've used, but, um, I really like some of the features built around it. Like, uh, it, though it tends to have like pluggable cache backends. And I know I've used, uh, like an LRU cache policy. And just being able to kind of mix and match those things with one underlying uh, library or tool set is, is very nice. Yeah, actually, that, um, that's, that's like exactly the kind of feature you don't want to build yourself, right? Because if you ever run out of memory in production and, and it was because of code you wrote, that's always an embarrassing moment. Um, uh, so I also um, previously once used a library called LBMKV, um, which sits on top of Amnesia. And um, it didn't have any sort of automatic cache clearing. And so I did have to worry about writing that part myself. And it was, you know, a, a piece of code I'd rather not write myself if I didn't have to. Um, and luckily, the use case we had for it was simple enough that it was pretty easy just to, you know, once a minute, we just scanned through all the rows and looked for anything that needed to be expired. Um, and, and so that worked out okay. It, it wasn't too bad. But, um, but yeah, I, I would recommend... 
Um, if you are just wanting to do caching or you know something uh, like a very standard use case for something like ETS, then going for CacheX or, or one of the other libraries that wraps it up and provides some of those other nice-to-haves is, is a great way to get started. Yeah, um, as far as using ETS or DETS directly, aside from uh, sort of playing with them generally, I have, uh, I mentioned one project that we worked on where we have a um, kind of a local agent running on, on machines that's interacted with via a Qt client. And it, uh, it provides a cached and kind of filtered view of the overarching application GraphQL layer so that it uh, still operates in the event of a network outage or whatever because it's, uh, it needs to be highly available. And we just basically had had queries and subscriptions that would keep local ETS tables and write them to disk with debts, and then always use those lookups and always be uh, updating the tables. And in general, having all this built into the, uh, the virtual machine is super duper nice. Like I probably wouldn't have, like if I had to bring in Redis as a dependency on on this local small machine and then other things just to get this kind of behavior, I, I don't know that I would have reached for for the solution we reached for ultimately. So really nice to have kind of robust tooling built in. Yeah, I'll second that. Um, and also, you know, I've heard people definitely make the argument before, especially if maybe Elixir or Erlang is a small part of your overall tech stack at a, at a job. Um, a lot of people would uh, advocate for, hey, let's just use Redis or let's just use Postgres. Um, but, you know, some other uh, managed persistence layer or consistency tool. Um, and I think that's a totally valid um, concern or, or a good use case for people to follow. But, uh, but a couple of things to also to consider if you find yourself in that position is what kind of data are you storing? So for instance, if, um, if you're trying to store like user structs, um, I've heard of people doing things like um, putting session storage into, into ETS tables. And if you're doing things like that, um, it can be, you, you have to figure out a way to take that like session struct or if you have date structs um, or any other sort of non-trivial piece of data, um, you're going to have to figure out how you serialize that and then how you read it back. And, um, and, and there's a couple of really great tools for that. You can use the Erlang term to binary, which will just take any Erlang term and generate binary code for it so that that becomes a very easy to store, um, uh, an, e an easy thing to store. Um, and, and then you have the opposite Erlang binary to term function, which will turn it back into your um, native term inside the VM. But, um, but that means that if you go try to peek at the data in Redis, it, it's just going to look like binary blobs. You're not going to be able to make any sense out of really what's being stored in there. Um, so it's, uh, it can be really nice to be using these sorts of tools that are in the VM just because um, it's, it's so easy then to go peek at it, right? You can, if you get an observer, uh, an observer session that's connected to that remote node, you can like peek through ETS tables um, and uh, even if you just have a t an IEX terminal, it becomes really easy to kind of like poke and prod at what data is in there and what does it look like right now. Um, and, and those tools are, are just really useful in general. I find that that kind of observability of a production system gives me a lot of confidence that, that I'll be able to troubleshoot it if it goes wrong. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten uh, an early project that I worked on in Elixir. Um, uh, someone that is in the community and super smart 
uh, had had written the system that is uh, that was ETS based and did all these table lookups for driving logic so that they could uh, basically build a uh, configurable engine to do a whole bunch of comparison of insurance quotes actually. And uh, the the underlying the the company that this was for ultimately they were very confused by the flexibility offered and it was super fast it was just just crazy fast for you know compared to their existing system and they ended up like basically not knowing that he had built something amazing for them and they rebuilt a whole bunch of little one-off node scripts to do this comparison stuff and turned what would have just been hey configure some stuff in ets tables into like 800 things they managed deploying not even joking 800 different projects instead of 800 ets tables so anyway that's not particularly related to the power of ets except for you know having it at his disposal led him to a really cool architecture and uh it got abandoned anyway so that's sad that is that is tragic i would i would be really bummed if that was my code and you know and just to not have it get used after after being after going through the work to discover that sort of a solution um, yeah and I, they, they brought on a new cto at the company and he didn't understand it and i explained it to him a lot and he just never never got that no really this was all the, all the code that needs to be written everything else is configuration um, it was sad it was very sad this episode is brought to you by triplebyte applying to programming jobs sucks you have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Anyway, um, have you used, uh, I know, Generally, most people probably have used ETS implicitly or sort of as a transitive dependency or something. Um, have you done anything interesting specifically with, uh, with any of them directly? Um, so uh, actually, as you were telling that story, I was, I was reminded of a little side project. This is well within the realm of I was just playing around. So I have a little side project um, called Show Off. And uh, it was, I was exploring how to like represent SVGs. I just was playing with SVGs for a little while and I made a little Phoenix app where you can, um, you can kind of create these little Erlang terms and you can do things like define a macro and then use it to generate a more complex SVG. And um, anyway, so I, I did that as a project with a friend and it uses ETS just to store copies of the SVGs that other people have come in and generated. And, um, and then you can like click through to see a library of, of example SVGs and what does the data structure look like. So um, that one's a cool one and it's open source if anyone wants to take a look at it. Um, and then the only production system I've ever used, I mentioned that LBM KV wrapper around Amnesia. And that was, uh, it was a little project where um, we were having to do some web scraping. And, um, and generally the like, 
when you kick off the work to start the web scraping, you know it's going to be a high latency operation because the website it was scraping was not particularly fast and it was going to take multiple steps kind of to navigate through a whole flow. And uh, we wanted a way for, um, for us to kind of kick this off and check on the status as it was going. And so um, we used that little library and uh, LBMKV. And what we found is um, basically when we would kick off the job, we would give it an ID and we would store a little bit of metadata associated to that ID. And, um, and so someone else could come back later and just check like, hey, did that thing finish or did it fail or did it, did it end up with some good data? And, um, and you, we could have an entire cluster. We ended up, I think, with only two nodes because it, um, it was mostly just IO bound, right? It wasn't crazy CPU intensive. Um, but, uh, but when we were evaluating it, we were trying to decide like, oh, how, how easy or hard would this be to use? Or like, is this going to be crazy slow or anything like that? So um, I did a little bit of benchmarking and um, I'll post a link to this gist where I did some benchmarking, but I put it on three AWS nodes that were like four core nodes. And, um, and I was able to get uh, around 9,000 writes per second uh, of writing data in, and, and each write is consistent across the cluster. It, um, it performs the write to all three nodes before returning. And um, that was just a cool, a cool usage, I thought, where, um, again, like we could have used Redis, but there wasn't a Redis in that environment um, that we could easily make use of. And, uh, and it was nice to be able to store things like dates in just this native format. Um, and so that, that project just, um, it just, it was kind of living alongside an existing Rails project. And um, we kept having to, you know, scale up resources for the, the Rails project. We all know this story, but um, it, was, it was just remarkable how it just ran for like months and months. And um, the only thing I'll point out, uh, if, if anyone is gonna use a library like this or use Amnesia, um, there is a function that's really important in the Amnesia API when a new node is starting up. Um, there's a function to say, hey, please wait for any Amnesia tables to finish syncing before you continue. And uh, that's optional. But if you call it during your application startup, then it means that you don't have to worry about like this new node not having all the data yet. And so we put that into our application um, that made it uh, so that like on startup, it took about an extra one second most of the time to start up. It wasn't too long. And, um, and that just meant that as soon as I was ready to receive my first request for information, I already had a full copy of the information. And we used that to be able to do rolling deploys without, you know, without needing to like figure out how to manage all the data because each node had a full copy of, of all the data. So um, it was a yeah. nice way to get around some of the distributed systems problems. Yeah, and I I like the whole cluster aware nature of these these things. Well, of, of amnesia specifically, I guess, um, just because like once you have a cluster, like a production cluster, and you've got all of the operational stuff around running multiple nodes, which isn't complicated really. Um, just being able to say like you know people say oh well you know maybe just use Redis, but I mean why I've got it this way I kind of can have it in memory and don't go out over the network, even if it's, even if it were local Redis, right? I get to, I get to avoid switching context, which has to make me faster. Um, anyway, so. Yeah, there's a, I, I, you know, I don't think you can really make an argument for efficiency other than the fact that obviously Redis has, um, 
you know, Redis actually has some really cool support for things like Z sets. And so if, if your data fits very neatly into one of the data structures that Redis provides, a lot of times you can, you can get a lot of mileage out of it. It's an amazing product and or project, and I don't want to disparage it by any means, but oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, that's an excellent point. If you're, yeah, if you're not using it as, as some kind of data cache, but are actually using its, its neat feature set, then yeah, there's definitely benefit in using it. A buddy of mine, used it for a bunch of analytics stuff and he got a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And the project keeps getting better. It has such a, has like an amazing community of people who are building really interesting things, really using the feature set that's there. Um, but, but I think I agree with you that most of the time that I see people using it just as like a key value store and that's usually just because they want caching, then um, I would, I would definitely uh, encourage people to take a look at things like CacheX because that can, you know, saves you a little bit of trouble with serialization, a little bit of performance, and it's just one less thing to worry about, right? And it means that in your project README, you don't have to include some notes about brew install Redis and get it started in order to run this project locally. Uh, it's just part of the project. So um, I think those kinds of things are just, they're wins for the dev, uh, for the developer experience on your team. Yeah. And also so, in, our, in our case where I used, uh, where we were using ETS, um, you know, having an extra thing to manage on these installed very small devices, like we installed this thing on 486s and whatnot. Uh, you know, it's, it's really nice to not have to run Redis on the 486 that you barely can fit your stuff on. <laughs> I, I don't think I've heard of anyone deploying to 486s in, in quite a long time, actually. Is, is, I don't know if you can, but uh, is it possible to share a little bit more about what this project was? I, so I'm not 100% sure if any of the 486s were in production. I know they had some in labs, but yeah, it, it's, it's to replace uh, an operating system on a particular sort of device that is very widely distributed um, and typically runs sort of a custom a custom OS, but instead now runs uh, our variant of um, Gentoo that just runs these sort of two applications that makes up the the product suite. Nice. That's, um, I, I mean, it sounds like that would have, is that something that in today's world you would have considered using NERVS for? Um, possibly. There's one really solid benefit uh, of that wasn't around when we started, which is the NERVS hub. Um, so, you know, we are, these are, I don't know if I'd want to call these IOT things, but it is a bunch of deployed devices that talk back that run Elixir, but, but not in a, not in a distributed cluster yet. Um, but, uh, they, uh, but they did cluster like within a given location, they were capable of clustering, which was nice because you'd have multiple of these deployed in a given spot. Um, so it's nice when you have these small machines to be able to share compute with other small machines that happen not to be doing anything right now. But, um, yeah, like I, I would probably consider nerves, but the big benefit we would have gotten would be like sort of certificate management and update pushing um, because, and, and that was solved separately in the OS level. Yeah, that actually, um, that's an interesting set of uh, requirements for a project like that. Um, and it sounds like there is, it was an existing project or product. Um, and so you probably couldn't just start switching around um, all your tooling willy nilly, but um, I am, uh, I'm actually curious, this, this reminded me when you mentioned certificate management, um, Erling, I think it was 19, shipped with the ability to like use TLS for the distribution protocol. 
Um, and I just recently on kind of a hobby nerves project have been trying to get that set up and, uh, I've, I've found it, uh, not totally straightforward up to this point. Have you ever done anything like that, uh, Josh? No, I have, I've only used sort of the default distribution strategy stuff. Um, very, very bog standard. Um, but I'm, I have purchased SD cards for my little nerves cluster of toys. So I don't know. I might look at it once I get that running. Yeah, I was, um, I'm currently in, uh, you know, have just kind of standard nerves, uh, on a couple of devices and then they open WebSocket, uh, web, like WebSockets over secure WebSocket, um, to a server because I wanted to be able to like check the status of certain things in my house from wherever I was in the world. And, um, and so that works, but I was just hoping to get rid of needing to worry about another serialization layer and just use uh, TLS um, so that I can just be distributed, just be connected, um, but still looking into that. And if any of our listeners have done things around, uh, you know, maybe I know there's libraries like Partisan, which um, you can you can choose not to fully mesh your network. Um, so like if you get really big clusters, things like Partisan become an issue. Um, and, and also sometimes for security reasons, your company wants to use TLS in between nodes. If any of our listeners have experience with that, I think we'd love to hear from you uh, about those kinds of things and uh, maybe have you on the show to, to chat about those sorts of security issues that a lot of times um, we just don't think about until you're in production or, or you know, maybe a SOC auditor is like, well, is there TLS encryption between these machines? And, and you realize that you have to think about it. So, um, so anyone with experience, let us know. We'd love to talk to you. Um, and one other topic that I was hoping to touch on today, uh, Josh, I know that in the past you've done um, kind of some native UI stuff. Um, and uh, I mean, you mentioned the QT client. And so uh, that might be an interesting place to start. But also if, uh, if you have any experience with things like WX or Scenic, I would love to hear what kinds of what your experience looked like in those areas. Yeah, so um, on the Qt front, I'll just say that you know it's it's our Qt is uh, pretty mature, uh, but you know in that case I was not involved in in the front end for the most part. Um, but it you know it's it was a very very easy decision when you wanted to run on ancient hardware. Um, anyway, it works great for that. Uh, also, if you want to do ancient things, Erlang has WX built in. Uh, which is, I think, still really a pain in the butt to compile properly on the on the Mac, but um, seems fairly fairly straightforward on Linux. And I really like just the ability to quickly spin up a UI without any other dependencies, for the most part, as long as you built it right. Um, in Erlang, uh, that I used that for uh, I built like a front end for the little Tetris client that I wrote uh, that used WX, and that was fun. I've done a few other WX things like. Uh, you know, to show a little spaceship simulation or whatever. But, you know, it's really nice just to have it at your disposal if you want to play with it. Um, and you don't have to do anything fancy to get graphics up and running. And really cool thing about it is all the buttons and everything, they're, you know, they're just actors, they're processes. Um, and so it's it's maps very well to the processes sending each other messages model generally, um, which, uh, you know, we were talking like it, if you've done a whole bunch of other UI stuff that sort of doesn't, doesn't act that way, although most of it, most of it tries to do something very like that, but it's different when it's an actual process. Um, it feels a lot more like 
uh, the small talk Alan K vision, I think of, of UIs. Um, and then another thing similar to WX, but probably ultimately easier to get running, which is a little funny to me is uh, Scenic. So Scenic is uh, Boyd Moulter's uh, GL layer. So it's, I think, still focused only on sort of building 2D interfaces, but it uses, uses OpenGL and it's all declarative. So you declare your UI and it just renders it. And it's, I've played with it. I haven't done anything in production with it, but I've played with it lots and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And it kind of feels, feels really good. He's got the API, very nice. I don't know if you're like me, but when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right thing to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I've picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains, and you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. And getting a domain that's relevant to your brand, that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just, it's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up, and so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. Um, we have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so I probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that DevChat is about tech. And, and I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do, and it just sticks in people's head. It's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year, and uh, go check out all the new technology. They switched over to ces.tech from cesweb.org. Uh, Viacom has viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose insight.tech for their latest initiative. And startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash elixir and use the coupon code elixir.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at cmaxw and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this and I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash elixir and get this deal today. Yeah, I'll uh, definitely plus one that. Thank you, Boyd, for the hard work on Scenic because um, I, I remember when he announced it a couple of years ago and seems like probably two years ago now at Elixir Comp. Um, was it just last year? It, might not have been it was two long. years ago and then he talked about it again last year. Uh, yeah, two years ago he announced it, but uh, you didn't really get to see anything on it uh, publicly till last year. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so when, when he released it at this last Elixir Conf, um, I remember afterwards just seeing so many fun examples of, uh, you know, people posting things on Twitter of, oh, I got, you know, a, a thermometer working or I got, uh, you know, these other UI controls and uh, like circular graphs and, and all sorts of interesting things that people were doing with Scenic. And, um, and I heard, I haven't watched the presentation yet, but ElixirConf is going on right around the time we're recording this. And uh, someone was doing a presentation on uh, rendering like Escher artwork with Scenic, which sounds super fun and interesting, uh, very sort of math nerdy, if you're into that sort of a thing. Um, so I will be looking forward to catching up on some of the Scenic stuff. Um, I've done 
um, just one scenic project. I, tr I actually tried to start a WX project uh, about a year ago. So um, our local Ruby meetup group, um, which I had been a part of for a long time, uh, had this game that we used to play. Uh, it was like a, a robot tank game. And you'd basically write a little bit of code to control your robot. And then they would all battle each other, right? And it, it just made for a fun meetup. It was a good chance just to like try out a little bit of simple programming um, and, and it's super satisfying to, to see things blow up as a result of your code. And, uh, and so I was trying to recreate that in Elixir and tried to do it with WX and, uh, and, and maybe just cause I haven't done a lot of graphics programming in the past, but, um, I definitely found it tricky to, to get it all up and running. And, um, the WX part, uh, wasn't too bad. Um, but but like once I had that up and running doing things like, oh, I want to render this uh, PNG and I want to like rotate it and stuff like that, that, that stuff felt tricky. Um, and I recently started trying that in Scenic and it, it's going much better. I'm not done yet, but uh, a lot more, a lot more smooth, a lot more. Um, you can tell that Boyd put in just a ton of time figuring out um, the ways that you might want to model that kind of UI. Um, yeah. So on, on the, did it go on? I was just going to say just the, the way that the components kind of interact. Um, I actually think it in a way it kind of, it feels similar to a lot of the JavaScript community has uh, kind of found their way into a similar model. So if you think about like react with this idea of like components, especially, especially if you think of like the stateful component examples, um, or even, uh, what was that? Uh, there was a Google library for a little while that like advocated for this idea of like these very stateful self-aware components. Polymer. Yeah. Polymer. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see that the JavaScript community has kind of iterated around this same area. And I think scenic um, at least at a basic level has, has a similar concept where like each thing in your UI is an actor and it receives messages. It sends messages when it, when when somebody touches it or interacts with it um, and that becomes just a really uh, a really natural way to to model your ui in elixir yeah and that combined with the layering of of transforms sort of naturally makes it makes it really cool his example of a uh, sort of a rotated slider that just works like you expect is um really something you only get right if you actually model the problem correctly so that's a that's a plus one on that uh on the on the wx front uh, I know that I have uh, provided lots and lots of examples of WX stuff in Erlang and Elixir that just doesn't work right on a Mac. And I didn't even know it because I was working on, you know, Linux box for a year and a half and doing all this stuff. And then when I went to run it on a Mac, it's like a gray screen because I did something wrong with the canvas setup. So apologies for anyone who thought, yes, I'll do this thing that, that I saw Josh do and it doesn't work at all on a Mac. That's a, that's my bad. Well, I, I don't know if anyone should should be upset about the fact that you produced free open source software that is useful as a reference, although maybe questionable usefulness if you're on a Mac. But uh, I, I certainly hope we don't all have to apologize for all the bad software we've ever put on GitHub because I think my apology would get very lengthy. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, well, uh, I, I think one other, one other topic um, that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up for today um, is, is maybe a little bit of a discussion around when should people dive into this stuff, right? So we've, we've talked about all these tools. A lot of these tools are just built into the standard library like Etz, Dets, and Amnesia, um, WX, uh, some things that um, 
some other things that are more like libraries, um, but very stable like CacheX and Scenic. Um, these things are all pretty amazing, but, um, but I think a lot of times new developers coming to the Elixir community can, it can seem overwhelming. I know to me, it felt a little overwhelming. I, the first time I was listening to conference talks from Elixir conferences and stuff, people were just talking about distributed systems all the time. And that's not an area that I feel uh, like I have a lot of uh, background in or comfort with. And, and so uh, it felt a little overwhelming. And so I'm curious, Josh, on your thoughts of when is it at the right time, if you're coming into the Lextreme community, when should you start to look at these things? Do you think that people should do it right away as soon as possible? Um, or uh, should we be encouraging all new Elixir devs to be learning these things? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, uh, I came to Elixir for the actor model and for, for concurrency. So for me, um, I always, like my opinion is people ought to be playing with these things because they're the power that I sort of arrived for. Um, but at the same time, I also see people do things. Uh, so when I first was probably the first nine months I wrote Elixir, um, at least half the time I was kind of trying to shoehorn uh, my object-oriented Ruby thinking into it, especially early on when there were the sort of records that really wanted to act like they were OO things. Um, but uh, so there's there's some danger that you'll sort of go crazy and make like make a process for everything you ever interact with from your database, just as your first step, you spin a process up, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, kind of overkill if you're looking at data, but um, I don't know. I, I, I wish people would err on the side of doing too much OTP and then figuring out when they're being stupid more so than thinking of OTP as some scary thing that they'll use eventually if they can't find a dependency that uses it the way they want. Um, just because it's, it's such a, like the, the distributed nature, like having a cluster, being able to do things cross cluster uh, is, is powerful. And you need to, at some point to take advantage of that, you need to think about OTP stuff. Um, and even on just a, just a local, not granted with, with lots of stuff like, like Broadway, which I haven't really played with uh, in depth, but, um, and, and gen stage and all the patterns that people have, there's probably plenty of cases where you don't have to go for OTP where you previously would have had to to get the behavior you want. But I don't know. I wish, I wish people would play with it um, and do stupid things in it and figure out which things are stupid more so than treat it like some scary thing. Cause it's not. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Um, you know, I, I, for some of my personal friends, I've encouraged them to like, Hey, if you want to learn, just, just pick a, just do like a basic Phoenix app and get it off the ground and don't, don't worry about supervisors or anything else. Um, but, um, but I can definitely see that, you know, I, I think uh, the thing that made me, I didn't come to Elixir for concurrency and, and OTP things, but actually one of the projects I did early on um, made really good use of uh, just the isolation that a gen server can provide. Um, I think we talked about it briefly on the last pod on last on our last episode, but it was, it was managing some TCP connections and, um, and kind of sending and receiving these messages that need to be parsed a certain way. And when I had tried to build that same library in Ruby with threads, it was, it was, I, I was finding bugs for months afterwards, right? Like months after we had done lots of testing and put it into production, I was still finding a few bugs and edge cases here and there. And, um, when I built it in Elixir, it just, I like, I got a version of it working. And after that, I put in a few performance optimizations just based on my own benchmarking. But 
I never needed the performance optimizations and I've still never found a bug with it. Um, actually that's a lie. I found one bug with it that I introduced when I put in one of the performance optimizations. So, uh, that just that idea of like the isolation and like, Hey, this part of my state lives with this actor. Um, that that's so powerful. So, uh, I would say maybe, maybe a great way if, if you're new to the language, try to find a side project where you can play with this stuff. I, you know, I, I do think, if you are doing something in the evenings or something just for fun, or maybe it's a hack day at your work or something like that, by all means do something that uses ETS or, uh, or play around with supervisors and what happens when things crash. Um, Cause I, I do agree that that's, you know, so much of the power, so much of why we have these amazing tools that are really easy to use like Phoenix is because of the underlying tools um, that maybe we don't reach for quite as often. Um, and I think that's fine to, in a production system, not to re-implement something like Phoenix or not to re-implement something like Broadway or Gen Stage, um, right? Those, they, they still take a lot of work to get them to work really well and uh, to be intuitive. So um, I don't think you need to rebuild all that stuff in production projects, but finding to your point, Josh, like build something dumb, build something, you know, Build, go build your own Redis and see what that looks like. And you'll have to play around a little bit with uh, something like supervisors and OTP or maybe Gen TCP in order to get that working. Um, and you'll learn a ton and, and you don't ever have to ship it anywhere, um, but you'll, be, you'll know the, the tools better so that in the future, if a production project does benefit from them, you're ready to make use of them. And if a production project needs to have some troubleshooting done, you know the tools better than if you hadn't built something dumb. Yeah, so I, will, I would just augment that by saying, hey, build a game with shared state because it's, uh, it's really easy to model such a thing as a bunch of people sending messages to an actor, which is the, uh, which is the actual game, the shared state. And uh, so it's like really straightforward. It's obvious that you spin up a new one of these for every game that's currently ongoing on a server. And uh, it's just, it's fun. It's like a really fun intro to, to using state uh, gen service. Yeah, plus one. Um, I, I built a little tic-tac-toe game like that once for a meetup and it was, it was a ton of fun. And it's, uh, it's just a great way to get down to the low level of a gen server. Um, and it's a, it's a problem that fits it really well. Well, should we um, wrap up and do picks then? Um, I am okay with that. I have, I have exactly one, but why don't you go first with your pick? Sure. Picks. Um, so I will, one pick, uh, I'm going to pick this uh, blog post, uh, Elixir Scenic Snake Game. And um, the first time I was wanting to play with Scenic uh, after hearing about it, um, I followed along with this blog entry and it's, it's a really great, um, if you already know about scenic, it's probably too much detail, but if you're just getting into it, it's like, it doesn't skip any of the steps, right? Like it'll tell you, it'll make sure you know all the commands to enter on your console to get it working. Um, and so it was great to follow along with. And I think in about something like 30 or 45 minutes, I had a working snake game running on my laptop and then, um, and then I helped out my uh, six year old at the time son, uh, and he and I got it working on a little Raspberry Pi touchscreen in another 30-ish minutes of work. And um, that was just great fun. And uh, he played around with Snake for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he learned anything useful other than how to get good at Snake, but it was a very fun, fun project, a great way to just get the basic concepts of Scenic. 
um, under your belt. So uh, I'll pick that one. And, um, and, and just a general shout out again to Boyd uh, for all his great work there. I think that's all my picks for this week. Okay. So uh, I have, I have, I'm going to say two, two and a tenth pick. So the first is uh, there's this article, uh, more readable repos with the ecto filter pattern. It's just a really nice pattern on building a uh, sort of filtering function for a portion of your data model. Um, and it's, it's really nice. It's very similar to a pattern that I used back in the uh, sort of in the active record days. And since then, I hadn't really gotten into a, a stable pattern that I always use um, for this sort of thing for filtering. I always do some ad hoc thing, but uh, I like this. I'll probably try to just use this next time I'm reaching for this sort of thing and see how I like the pattern. But it looks, uh, it looks very familiar to me and comfortable. Um, and then there's a talk by Fred Abair at uh, Codebeam SF a couple weeks back called Operable Erlang and Elixir. And I watched it and I really enjoyed it. And thinking back, I can't think of any one particular point that he made that I think is interesting, but just Fred's talks are always great. And I had that on my list of things to share. Uh, and then finally, I saw a tweet that I'll share that uh, a guy says he bought a mechanical keyboard with more resistance, so his code will be strongly typed. And that's just fantastic. <laughs> so that, those, are, those are all of my picks. That's, that's an amazing tweet. All right. Um, well, thanks everyone for being with us for another episode. Reach out to us if there's topics um, that you're interested in. Uh, if you are interested in security or uh, deployment strategies, um, supervision, whatever, whatever sorts of questions you have or uh, topics that you think would be beneficial for the community, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Um, and otherwise, we will see you again next week. Have a good one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.